0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Kane and Rince podcast, Volume 5, Issue 242. You can play along with Kane and Rince and we are very much heading towards the end of our fifth volume now, but we still have some games to go. They include The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. Better get cracking on that one if you haven't already. Uh, after that, it's Amnesia The Dark Descent. We do not take responsibility for any cardiac arrests or anything that may occur. Following that, Fallout New Vegas and then back to Metropolis Street Racer and MDK. Head to canorince.com for all the details and also articles, features, reviews, videos, links to our forum, our Facebook page and our YouTube channel. And if you enjoy what we do, the many hours we put into our podcasts here and put into your ears, you can support us financially via our Patreon, patreon patreon.com slash Cana You can donate a dollar a month or whatever you think. And that helps us to keep on doing what we are doing. If we average just 50 pennies, that's euro cents, cents or uh, English pence, uh, they're all worth about the same currently. Uh, if we average just 50 of those per podcast download, we could afford to take Kena Rinse on as a full time professional concern with far more content and even str- even stronger output, better podcast, better researched, better prepared uh, and all that. So please consider that if you will. However, if you prefer to get something tangible and real in return for your hard earned cash, please do remember we have a shop. Uh, at spreadshirt sorry shop.spreadshirt.co.uk slash Cana where you can buy Cana Rinse branded t-shirts and bags and they're very cool and we get a couple of quid from each one we sell don't forget we also have another podcast it's been going best part of a couple of years now so if you haven't subscribed Please do. Sound of play. It's uh, an hour every Wednesday, uh, including uh, several of your favourite members of the Cana team uh, and me and guests and other uh, people from the community and occasional composers. And we talk and listen to video games, music that we love. It's a lot of fun. Either way, please review, rate and subscribe to both of our podcasts if you can, wherever you get them. iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, tune in, uh, tell your friends and uh, spread the good word. Thanks for listening to The Preamble. Now joining me, Leon Cox, in issue 242 are James Carter. Good moral. Carl Moon. Hello, everybody. And making his Kane and Rinse debut is Chris Bann from Off of Midnight Resistance. Hello. Hello. Uh, so we're kind of doing this. Uh, I mean, you know, it was always under consideration, but, uh, but one of the reasons <laughs> I, I made sure we had Broken Sword, Shadow of the Templars in this run of shows was because... Chris, you hadn't been on a cane of rinse before, and this was the one that you wanted to do, I've been, to come on for. I've been going on about it for about two years now, yeah. Been gagging for it. Mm. So, that means uh, our histories with the game, you must uh, you must go back. You, you obviously have a fondness, and uh, I assume, does that mean you played this when it was first out 20 years ago?
1: Yeah, I remember. um, Now, I was trying to remember today, actually, was Broken Sword on Demo One, the PS1 demo disc that you got with the machine? I
0: think the trailer was. I think the trailer was certainly. um, I remember my history was going to start with the trailer that was on a demo disc, but I don't know. I don't remember if it was Demo One or if it was uh, an official PlayStation Magazine CD. Yeah,
1: because I I had the demo from somewhere, anyone, on a demo disc and had played that countless times. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so there was
0: a playable demo. There was def- there right. was
1: definitely a playable demo that that went up to getting past uh, Flobage, the 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 road worker. Um, okay, that's where it finished. So the, the first kind of twenty minutes, half an hour of the game, something like that. Or I think maybe as you drop right. down into the into the sewer. Uh now this is ringing a bell. Yeah, Some, okay. Somewhere mm. around there, and just as you drop down to the sewer, you, there's an extra. There's a special little bit of dialogue where George says kind of just sells the adventures here, basically. Um, so, yeah, I had that. Then I actually played Broken Sword 2 first all the way through. Oh, really? Um, yeah, just because... Well, I, I, to be honest, I can't really remember why, but I, I ended up with a copy of Broken Sword 2 before I ended up with a copy of Broken Sword. I think, because I, I, I definitely remember the demo of Broken Sword 2, which was the, the doc. Um, and then uh, eventually a friend of mine, I think, in would have been... To be honest, not long after it came out, they did a special re-release of it and a few other games and as as a, an imprint called help i think there was that and road That's rash right. and a couple of other things yeah. the, and the money went to a charity i can't remember
0: war child war child yeah. it was war they, child yeah. they've recently done and this is a good as, as good a place to mention it as any mm. um they've recently done a help compilation on steam which is 10 pounds for five original games by uh by name developers including people like sports interactive so oh, there you go check that out yeah, yeah. so it, it was that version that, that was the first time i played it all the way through and then I've just
1: always had a version of it somewhere knocking round. So um, there's, I've, there was, I've always had, I've still got the the sold out release somewhere here. Uh, right. Both the 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 Bro- Broken Sword one and Broken Sword two. They don't run very well on modern machines. I mean, they didn't no. run well on a on a Windows XP machine, uh, going back probably ten years now. But then obviously the re releases happened in two thousand and nine, I think. Yeah, and then since then, obviously, I've just I've got that in my Steam library. I've got well, I've got all the, the Broken Sword games. Um, that being all the Broken Sword games being one, two, four, and the first half of five um, mm-hmm. is all the Broken Sword games. Uh, so I've just always had them there, and they, to me, Broken Sword one was the first because I was always a console kid. I'd never really experienced uh, Monkey Island or Simon's Quest or anything like that. Right. Uh, I kind of went Nes Nes N sixty four playstation Mm. so this to me was the first time that i'd played something that one had like a very set defined story that wasn't kind of level based or score attack stuff like that you know there was a there was a Mm. really a narrative to it but also one that largely was set in the real world if you know what i mean like yes okay it's it's a story of 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 templar knights and sort of clandestine rituals but the majority of it is like a little noir detective story, um, That's right, yeah. or kind of buddy cop story, depending on how you want to look at it. And like it's it's mm. very much kind of rooted in well, not the real world, but a kind of slightly fantasy world, the, the, a kind of comic book version of the real world. And yeah. it was the first time I'd experienced that with a game, like a game that actually felt like it had been written rather than just it was a collection of thirty levels and off you went. Mm. So for mm. me, it was it was mind blowing. And then obviously the the amount of work that went into it, and at the time. The, the original release in three twenty by two forty, whatever it was, or six forty by four eighty, or whatever it, whatever it would have been maximum. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it looked phenomenal, and it yeah. looked like nothing else. And obviously, they could do that because of of the way the game worked. But I just remember sitting there and thinking that like, this is a, this is a, a comic or a cartoon for adults, yeah, w- with a great story, and I can play it as well. And just I've been hooked ever ever since.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Carl. Uh, how about you? As was much of the time, and I think I've mentioned several times on this show, uh, I was a heavy reader of computer and video games and many magazines at that time. And uh, the issue came out, and I remember it giving Broken Sword a, a high five. And it, this was a strange issue because I remember a lot of games getting a high five, that issue. Um, and the, the fact that they were praising this, a point-and-click game, which five, five years prior was pretty much all I was playing um, on the Amiga uh, and and we'd been a reasonable amount of time without one. I mean, we'd had Discworld a year earlier on the PlayStation and I'd played a game just a year before called Clandestiny on the PC. Oh. Uh, and whilst I liked the concept, I really didn't like how that game played. So as fate would have it, you know, a year later we got a Clandestine game and it was sort of I had this big excitement about it because I hadn't been... Truly enthused or excited by a point and click in such a long time, and I mean, I was such a ridiculously heavy player of them; I couldn't get enough. And as the move went to the three D consoles, and the Amiga was long gone, it, it was an itch that was waiting to be scratched. And then this game came around that was just beautiful to look at. The, the you know these hand drawn animations, beautifully coloured in. What's more, actually getting good reviews. Uh it was it was something that, you know, I, I felt I had to have. And much like you, Leon, I know it was a trailer that, that got me excited for mm. it. Um I know there was a demo. I didn't play it <laughs> because I'm one of these sort of funny people. I don't like really playing the demo if I know I already want the game. And so I threw it on my Christmas list because I couldn't get it at the time, and it was set to be a pretty busy Christmas. And I As I I went down the morning, you're looking for all the PlayStation sized, you know, cases thinking, what could I get? And I, you know, I tore them all open and I couldn't find Broken Sword. And I remember this Christmas, I got Die Hard Trilogy, FIFA 97, Tomb Raider. And then I was like, where's the one that I kind of really want? You know, and eventually it was sort of the secret gift that was held back at the end and it was Broken Sword. And so, yeah, the first time I actually got my hands on it was as a Christmas gift that that was intentionally held back by my parents, knowing how much I you know I love that genre um so one of the few occasions where it's probably not a day one game for me but it was something that I absolutely wanted from the the second that I knew about it especially um as a, a fan particularly the visual style of Beneath a Steel Sky and knowing that it was by the same designers I mean point and click games were a genre that I actually did follow the you know the the designs of um, and so yeah, this this was the the game of 1996 for me. You, can, you know, you can forget Tomb Raider, Broken Sword was the one that I had to have. And have you been back to
0: it at all since?
2: Yeah, uh, I played through it on PC, um, and then I picked up the this. I mean, I played back through on the PC over a decade ago, and yeah. then I picked up the uh, the director's cut on mobile. Okay. Um. And yeah, I mean, that's something I'll talk about a little we bit later, it. but yeah, it's yeah. Uh, yeah, it is a game that I've picked up several times and I've, I've
0: since, because I couldn't be bothered putting discs in anymore, I've since bought it several more times digitally. James, how about you? Is this a new one for you or do you go back way times with it? This came
3: out right when I was moving from Super Nintendo, console gaming, Game Boy, that sort of stuff onto PC. When I got to around 95, 96, uh, we got our own computer at home and I was all about, PC games from that point on for a significant period of time. But it was stuff I played at school with my friends. So Command & Conquer, specifically Red Alert and Championship Manager and any number of Doom clones and stuff like that. Um, So this kind of completely passed me by. I was aware of what point-and-click games were, but I just never got into any at the time. Um, And that means that I don't want to speak for you Liam, but I might be in a kind of weird position here where not only did I not play the game until the Director's Cut version was available um, but that also means that I didn't play it until they post Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Codes ah, uh, world okay. as well which obviously <laughs> yeah. I imagine we'll talk about. Um, we'll come into that. So yeah I, I didn't play this until uh, 2009, 2010 so right as okay. the DS version came out uh, and that, that DS version was my first experience with it. Uh, I heard it was coming out. As a director's cut on DS, I I was after something to play uh, on my travels and pick that up. And uh, that means that I played it without any uh, dialogue in terms of audio files. They just couldn't fit them on the DS cart. So it was all text. Um, But I've since been back recently to refresh myself on the PC version because I won now all of the Broken Swords re-releases on Steam. Um, although I've only ever played the the first one, the others are there, yeah. sort of tempting me from time to time, but I've just not quite
0: got around to them. I should say, listeners, uh, this podcast is all about the first game, not the others. Uh, sure. You know, they may be mentioned in passing, but uh, if we decide to continue with the series, then we will do just that. We'd even cover the one that uh, Chris refuses to recognise, <laughs> uh, and when we talk about why. Uh, so my history with uh, with the Broken Sword, really, you can trace it all the way back to the 8-bit times and the, uh, you know, the text adventures of the 80s. Um, and when the genre moved into the, uh, I mean, they were they were sometimes text and graphics, sometimes text only. But then uh, Lucasfilm Games uh, made Maniac Mansion. Obviously, there were Sierra games as well. Um, so the point and click Uh, genre sort of came into being Uh, I think the first one I bought and owned was actually Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade um, because I remember being very very taken with that Um, then I played uh, as much of that type of stuff as i could on the amiga for the next few years until it started to dry up on the amiga and these were actually games that um i used to play in tandem in sort of local co-op with my girlfriend at the time um because obviously they were they tended to be games that weren't sort of you know demanding of instant reactions and we could actually puzzle things out together and it was a lot of fun and so when a couple of years prior to this i guess we would played through uh Ben, uh, revolutions previous game beneath the steel sky um, and uh, we'd enjoyed it but we were a bit disappointed with its rather abrupt ending which anyone who knows that game will I, I think remember however you know we were we'd we'd enjoyed at least the first half of it enough to to be excited about revolutions next game and when we saw that that trailer, that advert on that disc, uh, it was, yeah, it was another absolute must have. So if I recall correctly now um, this was 20 years ago, but, uh, but yeah, so I was, I was 24 when this came out. I bought this when it came out late in 1996 uh, on the PlayStation one, but we saved it until Christmas day and we uh, it was a Christmas where we told all our families that we were going away but in fact we weren't we were indoors playing broken sword the shadow of the Templars. <laughs> so uh so we played that for a, a good uh, couple of weeks or however long it took us to finish it um we didn't initially at least i don't think we had a guide or a walkthrough, and we didn't have the internet we didn't have a pc hence we had the ps1 version um but it was translated pretty nicely albeit in lower res to the ps1 and uh, and i have enormously fond memories of playing through it since then i've been back to it through the director's cut in 2009 and for this show I researched the game not by playing through it for a third time but by watching somebody else play it play through it for six hours um, but that was a served as a very good refresher but without me having to do all the uh, the actual the legwork of pointing and clicking so the history of the game uh, as I say revolution software set up by Charles Cecil who himself had come through started with some 8-bit adventures on uh, on the ZX81 and the other 8 bits a bit that came after that. Uh, and Revolution Software started with a game called Lure of the Temptress on the Amiga, which I only remember playing a bit of. But it had some—it used this virtual theatre engine that they stuck with for uh, their next games, including this one. Um, and it had some—it uh, had some unusual ideas, I think, things that we, we still see today. Uh, whereas uh, LucasArts were still using the sort of um, relatively long-winded sort of click on verbs and then click on nouns type of stuff. Uh, Revolution used these sort of intelligent uh, icons, so uh, it really it felt like it was really streamlining the the point and click genre. Uh, and really, I don't think it's kind of it's kind of twenty years ago where they got it to is kind of where we are now, pretty much. Um, in stuff like uh, Walking Dead, the Telltale Games, it's pretty much the same interface, although maybe it slightly more helps you out with actually picking the right item and stuff like that. But there's there's less sort of you know, combining everything in your inventory and stuff like that. But but this was a, this was a big step forward. And yeah, so it was released on uh, PC and Mac and PS1 towards the end of 1996. Although apparently the PS1 version, I think, came out again, possibly in 1998. Um, I know that it was in America, it was known as Broken Sword Circle of Blood originally, but then it got re-released under its actual title of The Shadow of the Templars. I don't know exactly what that was all about. Uh, there was a GBA version. I don't know if anyone's played
1: that uh, no I've never needed to if that makes sense <laughs> no
0: sure uh, ni- nice that it exists nonetheless uh, and then uh, Ubisoft published the director's cut uh, so Charles, Charles Cecil is down as a director producer and writer, uh, writer writers also credited Dave Cummins and Jonathan Howard uh, the, the composer we'll talk about the music of course is Barrington Falung who's uh, best known still I would su- suggest for his music for the Inspector Morse TV series yeah. And as we said, the director's cut came out in 2009. But since then, uh, it's come over to iOS in 2010 um, and Android in 2012 and Linux. There's a Linux version. Hurrah! As of 2013. Um, and yes, uh, Carl mentioned that high five in CMVG. Um, but uh, the reviews at the time were pretty strong. The, the, I mean, the iOS director's cut version, according to Game Rankings, has a, 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 a rating of 94%. But from five reviews, uh, it's not, not bad at all. So even back in 2010, uh, the game was still critically lauded. Uh, the game sold well, around a million copies back in the mid-90s mid, mid 90s on, on its original formats. Um, and apparently the, the iOS versions, uh, including the Smoking Mirror, which was the second game, were downloaded by over 4 million people. And I understand that. Any re-release of the original has pretty much always outsold sales for any of the sequels of the game. So development goes back to 1992. Um, So just after Lure of the Temptress, they were already working on Beneath the Steel Sky, which is this sort of uh, post-apocalyptic sci-fi piece with a very 2000 AD feel, including art by Dave Gibbons, is it? The 2000 AD artist, I think, did a lot of the concepts and, and screens for that. But yes, they said, Charles Cecil said way back in 92 that he was working on this game uh, set in Paris with a, a storyline surrounding the Knights Templar. It was originally not going to come to the PlayStation. Um, and again, this was Sony and apparently Virgin as well, thinking that people wouldn't be interested in 2D games on a 3D console, as it were. But um, but luckily uh, there were quite a few releases which bucked that trend. I'm thinking Worms, which came out very early on. Uh, and so this got its release. And uh, obviously... Uh, did very well and is fondly remembered. One of Cecil's goals apparently was to depart from the more humorous adventure games, more popular at the time, such as Monkey Island, by creating a game with good pacing and a complex storyline. But I think, as we'll discuss, the script is not exactly humorless. In fact, it's (laughs) it's quite goofy in places. It's just not as out there zany as, as some of LucasArts' stuff. Uh, So, yeah, the influence is obviously the tales of the Knights Templar. Uh, How are they described in the game as Jesus's private army or something like that? Uh, um, But yes, a Catholic uh, militia, effectively. Um, Possible books that may have been of interest to Charles Cecil were The Sign and the Seal, by Graham Hancock and Born in Blood, Lost Secrets of Freemasonry, which uh, is about how the the Knights Templar may still be influencing society by being uh, connected directly to the the strange, murky world of the Freemasons. Uh, If you want to know about the Freemasons, just watch the Stonecutters episode of The Simpsons and it tells you everything (laughs) you need to know pretty much. Uh, Obviously, Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, was influenced itself by Alan Quatermass and... Professor Challenger and all the stuff and the 30s chapter play movies. But I think it would be fair to say that uh, both Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the film and the game, and the Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, uh, later game from LucasArts, which was another one that me and my girlfriend played through together uh, before this uh, probably would have been influences as well in that they were slightly more, um, although they were, you know, based around these these kind of adventure-y, uh, you know, Films with chase scenes in basically. Uh and apart from one sequence on a train, this is very much, as Chris said, more of a noir kind of thing. Um, the sort of adventuring archaeologist type, although George is actually a law student, um, certainly was popularized by Indy. Any other obvious influences we're missing here? The, the
1: the art style in it is very reminiscent of of something that I can't quite place. And I think it's European cartoons from the late eighties exactly. and nineties. Yeah, Precisely you're only, spot on. Yeah, yeah
0: exactly. Well. Well, that's exactly what this feels like to me now. Watching it again today, as I did six hours of it, um, as well as desperately persuading myself not to talk in a in a in a in a ripe fruity French accent <laughs> the whole time. Uh, it's exactly, exactly that. So, yeah, with, uh, with just stopping off to give you uh, listeners a spoiler warning, if you've never played through uh, Broken Sword, Shadow of the Templars, in case we spoil any key plot points. Uh, yeah, let's go straight into it. The opening, um, which is an animated cutscene, scene. Um, and I would say both for the time, but also still really for now, um, you know, we see some absolutely spectacular art in games now, both in engine and... As pre-rendered or, or pre-pre-animated cutscenes, mm. but um, this is—it it feels it, exactly like Chris said. It, it feels like a throwback to me to European cartoons of maybe the maybe the eighties and early nineties. So it, so it, even then, it was like perhaps a bit of a throwback. And one of the things I was going to say is that you really couldn't set this game in modern times anyway. So it, 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 because of. The internet and mobile phones; it would change every single puzzle in the game, mm. unless you, unless they were constantly, you know, justifying the fact that uh, George and Nicole couldn't use Google or couldn't <laughs> use their iPhones. Um, that it now makes this really like a period piece, a charming period piece of the time. But the, yeah, that opening um, from seeing it the clown coming out of the of the shadows on the demo Um, and still when I see it now I just think it's such a it's such a striking opening obviously there are horrible we didn't know it was a horrible foreshadowing of events that would happen in Paris obviously not clown but the 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 bombs in Paris and stuff uh, didn't have such a chilling real world analog for the most part back in 1997 Um, but it was such a bold I think and and yeah like striking opening to a game
1: yeah, and I mean that, that opening line as well, which is I could listen to over and over and over and over again, and it would give me chills. Paris yeah. in the fall, the last months of the year, at the end of the millennium, like that as well. Because th- was was the trailer just that kind of opening cutscene? I'm trying to remember now.
0: No, it's got a few, um, it's got a few clips mainly from the animated sequences throughout the game, of which there isn't. You know, there's probably only a grand total of about a minute's worth or something yeah, like that. there's oh, not third. loads. Um, yeah.
1: But I say it's just so fascinating how that opening gives away. Like it's it's a it's a mood piece rather than anything to do with the actual game. Like there's there's nothing in that in mm. that opening that kind of s- suggests. Y- y- uh, you know what I mean? Like that that opening is just a bird flying round Paris and then going down mm-hmm. to seeing the clown, uh, and that's kind of it. And that's really wonderful. The music in there as well. Um, like it's actually I I I never I've never actually looked into. Um, into the, who who done the soundtrack? So f- for me, finding out that it's the same guy who did Morse—that's right. Of yeah. course, it is. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's very similar. Yeah, it, it's it's like for years again. It's been one of those things where I've been going. It reminds me of something, but I can't quite. I can't quite place what it is.
0: And yes, yeah. it, is, it is that. James, were you as struck by the intro in two thousand and ten, or did it not have the same impact?
3: Well, I think obviously I have to take take into. Uh, Account the fact that some things that would have taken influences from this game had had come out since. So, uh, sort of bird flying over a city and then coming down and, and going into a, a a sort of tone setting incident. Well, Fable had, had yes, several Fable times too, done. Yeah, exactly. Fable two did that that exact uh, same thing. But uh, the Fable it series it, yeah. had, um, had 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 done that. It put in mind the the filmic influences on this game. Uh, in particular, um, introducing a costume killer um, and uh, just taking you straight into this crime being committed, very much kind of like Beverly Hills Cop style, wacky criminals with their bizarre themed crimes, um, and, and sending you know opening on that the way that eighties action films did, you know, uh, uh, particularly crime films. Um, and for some reason, that came to mind. But the the animation obviously uh, struck me, uh, and in the same way, on the Gravity Rush show, I struggled to pinpoint other than just broad European animation um, the the hallmarks of that. It, it had that kind of feel to
1: it. The other interesting thing to remember as well is this. So this came out in nineteen ninety six, and in nineteen like so, this is before obviously Assassin's Creed, before the Saboteur. Before a whole lot of other games set in like like up to this point, I don't think I'd set I'd played a game that was just set in Paris or any anywhere in the uh, in the real world. Hmm. You know what I mean?
0: I'd played a few text adventures.
1: I was uh, going to say nothing you know, that so, actually tried to present graphically. No
3: yeah in that way yeah.
1: And just yeah that, that at the time that was really unusual especially for me who was I've just realized I would have been 9 when this came out.
0: I was going to say you you would have been pretty young as would uh, as would Carl when you were first playing mm. this. So so it would have felt like I was 24 so it 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 felt like I guess to me it felt like the equivalent of a it, it played slightly young to me but it was um but it was more sophisticated than a lot of game stories that were doing the rounds, but we'll get onto the voice acting and stuff because I think that's where there's a slight yeah. um, dissonance. But it did feel, you know, talking about the, the sort of the presentation of it, consider that this was the same year as Resident Evil and then consider the voice acting. Now, I know mm. that was a localization, mm. but regardless of that, you know, that that was it. You know, the actual the. The, the dialogue and the performances of the dialogue here was... was yes, yeah, you know,
1: so someone um, still signed that off. Someone still thought that was acceptable to release yeah, in this, in this yeah, region. Exactly.
2: Broken Sword is the first time that I ever felt that like I was playing a point-and-click game that was genuinely selling itself as a high-quality movie. And I was 12 when this came out, and I'd, I'd hmm. come through a youth of watching, obviously, in, uh, an incredible number of Disney movies, as I'm sure we all did, and, and movies like the BFG and and, and, and these incredible... Uh, emotive art styles that you would see. And, you know, you, you mentioned the bird flying over the buildings at the start and, and you see the Parisian skyline and it comes down and then you get the, the, the higher level of animation with, with the clown and the, ca- the cafe and George's face and stuff. And it's one of the first times that I genuinely fell in love with an art style that a game was presenting me. And it, it's <laughs> there is an irony that the PlayStation was seen as, as the true birth of 3D gaming in, 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 in the mainstream. And it, in fact... Virgin didn't even publish it themselves on the PlayStation for that fact. They didn't think they thought it had to be 3D to really succeed on Sony PlayStation, it, and right. Sony stepped in and published it as a 2D animated game. And, and you mentioned, you know, Resident Evil, Tomb Raider; these are all incredible, high-profile franchises that that were born in 3D, and yet it was Broken Sword was the one that visually blew me away more than any of them because that art style was so on point, so incredibly beautiful to to play, uh, and and the fact that it never broke from it. And the, in fact, the only time that the art style that you see in Broken Sword changed was. It became slightly more polished, slightly different style in the sequel and then went 3D and and it's changed with every iteration in what we've seen. But the the art style that was utilized in Broken Sword, which is the very standard animators, draw it in pencil, heavy, thick black line over and then paint underneath, um, was just absolutely mind-blowing and it was what we saw in the trailer but the first time that I booted that game up and the music pans over the top I just knew that I was
0: in for a game that I was going to absolutely adore. Yeah I mean I, I really love the art on uh, you know Monkey Island 2 which was where they started to do the the pre you know hand drawn and then scanned in backdrops yeah. because the, the visuals would allow it but um, yeah even going back so as I say I've been watching this playthrough um, and apart from it being um, some I guess they've modded it or something so that it's uh, it's in 16 to 9 which it wouldn't have been at the time although the video runs in 1080p the resolution of the game is kind of maxed out or whatever it was maxed out at back then um, and it does show its age to a point uh, you know the, these uh, I understand that um, and uh, and we should say there's there's sort of two distinct types of animation there's there's the cutscenes, which as I say only yeah. construe about a minute worth and then there's the actual in-game stuff and the in-game stuff was you know way more lavishly animated than than previous games we'd seen yeah, in this genre yeah, you know just the the transitions from one area to another or or the the flourishes when when people would pick up an item and you know you'd, you'd see it animate and stuff like that um but i still find the the locations really evocative and atmospheric so you know you do look at it now and think you know and this is the role that the director's cut perhaps could and should have fulfilled but we'll talk about it separately later but for me it was slightly a missed opportunity in in making these locations you know it could have it could have just brought them to life in the way that they did. They were in my mind in, in 1996, but actually, you know, didn't quite manage to do that.
3: There's, uh, there's an interesting thing there, because uh, certainly in 2009, 2010, when I played it, and even going back to it now, um, I agree uh, completely about the animations. The, the 2D backgrounds mm. do have that feel of being a painted background, um, in Absolutely, the, in the, the yeah. they're, they're static, they're there to be explored, and they need to be static. And you return to the same location multiple times. There and are it,
0: little <laughs> bits of animation; they're not completely static. Um, there's there's the odd car going past or a leaf blowing, sure, but there's yeah. not a, there's not a lot. Yeah, but the the animations of the the, the characters uh, and when you get the face close
3: ups of them, they just e- even as late as I played it, you know, uh, thirteen years after release, um, they just seemed so flamboyant. Uh, in a way that sort of movement of the hands and the fingers and the you know all this sort of stuff that evokes the sort of thing you'd see uh like stagecraft where you're told to kind of overblow your uh, your movements to get the message across to the audience who who may be quite far away from you and the amount of detail and, and as I say flamboyance and that they put into those animations still struck me watching it back today, even it reminded me of of something like Ghost trick, which uh, on that show I gushed about. Mm, th- the yeah, way that's animated so. as well very and to so say so, that yeah. that's you know that's 15 years apart or how you know pretty much 15 years apart is yep. uh, astounding oh, even albeit yeah. i play the director scott i think it's still there in the original
0: so. yeah and uh, this all makes sense because i think it was made either in and around or in association with don bluth studios uh who were the studio responsible for i think um was it American Tale and uh, Land Before Time, but also mm-hmm. perhaps most famously to gamers, Dragon's Lair, the, the famous Laserdisc arcade game. And, and although it might not be the same artist, the sort of the style of animation is not a million miles away mm. from that. Again, that, that very flamboyant and heavy black line outline stuff, as Carl mentioned.
1: I mean, you can't underplay the fact that George manages to emote quite a lot through his, through his hair as well throughout the entire series. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been rocking that haircut for, <laughs> since I was a child. <laughs> The two things that the two animation things that stand out most to me are, say, George George's hair and George whipping the, the I think it was a manhole key out of his jacket, a manhole yeah. key which is about three times the length of his jacket, and it just comes out <laughs> yeah. like Mary Poppins's bag. Um, it was just played completely yeah. straight, absolutely yeah. fine. Just that's where you keep your manhole key, isn't it? Yeah,
0: I mean those are the those are the bits where the game perhaps is a bit more you know traditional humor humorous uh, you know Lucas Arts type comedy but perhaps it's it's not yeah he, it's not a rubber chicken with a pulley in the middle but he's still keeping captain caveman style yeah, uh, yeah. a million things in his coat but the it's some of the the incidental animations are amazing like uh when he picks up the it's a damp rag basically isn't it and it and it and it and it animates like a damp rag yes. and it's different to the animation of the tissue that he picks up earlier or does it is in fact he wets the tissue and then it becomes a da- anyway but yeah just real real attention to detail for mm. that stuff and, uh, and i still get the combination of the the text or verbal descriptions of certain items and that animation means that I still have a real strong sense of like the smell of the game. Do you know what I mean? Even, Mm -hmm. even 20 years on. So certain items in that game, them talking about the, the clown makeup and the plaster of Paris and all, and Mm -hmm. and all this stuff, it's still like got a real, everything's got real texture to me um, more than perhaps more than other games. And I I think it's a combination of those, those different facets, the, the writing being a bit more, uh, florid and the the animation being that that much more uh elaborate as well in in many point and click games when you play them, you
2: always have the aspect that this is your moment to do something, but you could leave that machine on for you know twenty four hours and nothing would change because you've got all the time in the world to make a decision and whilst that for the majority of this game is still the case the little Mm -hmm. touches in the animations make it feel like it's a really fluid experience like everything is happening in real time Mm. um and Mm. again up until this point i don't think i'd experienced that level of detail that level of of belonging and feeling like you're part of the game rather than just playing something um in in that kind of genre and yeah, I, I, again, it, it's like you were saying, Leon, about the you know the little, the textures and the feels and the smells of things, and and like I was in that world to, to all intents and purposes, I was stood over George's shoulder watching everything he was doing, um, rather than being you know the person controlling the avatar on the screen, uh, making decisions like I would in Monkey Island, and 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 that's not a knock on Monkey Island; they just feel like different. Forms of that genre, you know, I'm very positive about Monkey Island, as anyone who listens back to that show will find out. And I love that style, but this went down a far more, it you know, it plays stuff straight and then uses subtleties to deliver the humour, um, with it with its animations, and that I absolutely loved.
0: Jumping back slightly before we jump forward, I do want to um, pick up and talk a little bit more about the soundtrack because, again, for me, this is uh, absolutely synonymous. Now, I don't, I don't think there are. Uh, again, I don't think there's actually a huge amount of music because the same cues are used over and over yeah. again and there's there's certain flourishes which come up time and time again. Um, but what is there, I think, is I still find it absolutely magical. And uh, it's a shame, shame he hasn't done more games, I think. But um, uh, I was never a, a, a watcher of Morse, so I've, I've got you know nothing for or against Morse whatsoever. Uh, but I think the music here is just... Just gorgeous, and um, apart from a couple of scenes, there's uh, the the hotel foyer where there's a piano piece playing throughout, and there's the the Irish bar with the fiddle, <laughs> of course, <laughs> playing constantly throughout. Uh, I don't even know if that's an original composition or if it's trad, uh, but generally it's these it's these few audio stings and cues. Uh, Nicole has a has a theme. Which is you know slightly lighter more feminine or whatever the, what what little there is as much as you know it's not an album, necessarily an album you could get out of it uh, is just absolutely magnificent
1: yeah it's it's brilliant um again this is one of the things I think at nine, 10 years old that kind of set it apart from most games in that most games would drop you into a situation or a level or whatever with music over the top and the again you, you remember this is 20 years ago. Um, all right, we've had things like Broken Sword Two, which did which did an incredible. Uh, not Broken Sword, sorry, Monkey Island Two, which did an incredible thing with music. With the uh, I can mm. never remember the name of the engine, Amuse. You know, the Amuse engine. That's it, or iMuse, which, yeah. whichever. Yeah. Again, for where I was, I was, coming straight from mainly console games, music wasn't a th- really a, a a thing in games. It was just a, it was background sounds and and background tunes. Whereas in this, obviously, it was a kind of an audio cue that to explain, oh well, you've done something right there, but you've not quite, you've not quite fathomed it yet, or you know what I mean, right? You've opened, you've opened the mysterious door into the mysterious cave, uh, and it plays the mysterious theme. But again, it was just, yeah. it was, it was music for a film. It wasn't music for a game. It wasn't like a two-minute riff that just looped over and over and over and over and over again. This was like big swelling strings that gave you real sense. What's interesting is what I was going to say, which you perfectly evokes uh, Paris, but none of the music in it is... Pr- particularly traditional french um there's
0: there's there's hints of accordion obviously with the because the 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 bomb is 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 an accordion bomb so the majority of the music you think about is just kind of big swelling
1: strings um there's a a little bit of woodwind on top of it as well but it's i mean again probably compared to a lot of you know i'd I'd say it was cinematic but i don't know if it'd stand up particularly well to a proper cinematic score but it's just little bits of it and say you're right i don't think you'd get a worthwhile soundtrack out of it to pop on in the car or or to sit and listen to because it's just kind of, you know, chord shifts and things like that. But it just perfectly evokes that mystery and that sense that what you're doing, you know, you're, you're rifling through century-old mysteries and kind of uncovering things that were probably best left alone and it does it with just a few like a few little chords or just like a little kind of like a little woodwind line here and there and it's just it's spot it's kind of minimalist but well no it's not it's not minimalist that's because people who actually know like to do music will shout at me for saying that
0: i know yeah i know what you mean there's
1: very little to (laughs) it but it does exactly what it needs to
0: yeah the only downside then as it is now i think i'm not sure how much the um the director's cut picked up on this but it was extremely compressed certainly on the ps1 disc Mm. um and and watching this playthrough on pc i think it was also the case on pc so i guess it was to do with disc space but it was extremely condensed and compressed so it doesn't sound nearly as expansive and big and pretty as it could it's out it's got it's got its bottom and top kind of ripped off and it's not particularly Mm. stereo even i don't think it's very kind of all in the middle and i think that's a bit of a a bit of a shame but uh but in a way I, th- I think it's testament to to how evocative it is that i still absolutely love it despite that caveat yeah i mean it's worth to be honest with to, to be honest for me now
1: i mean obviously i'm a huge apologist for this game so i would say this but kind of in the way that we've learned to appreciate the art and the sound style of say things on the the original NES. Um, the, the, Mm. the soundtrack to Mario is, uh, what two square waves, a triangle wave and some noise and that's it. There's a certain amount of enjoyment I take in that game as a kind of a piece of, a piece of media from 1996 with all the kind of, it's, 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 it's almost an interesting documentary piece about where media was in 1996. There's so much audio in the game. I would guess 15, 20 hours of audio, something like that. Um, and as people who do podcasts know that amount of audio is a, is a good amount of disk space and so, yes. i would guess that the playstation discs are maybe 7 800 meg something like that yeah
0: they would have been yeah so
1: it's it's kind of um in the same way that at the moment people really like pretending that things were recorded on a vhs that kind of feel of just you know like again that that paris in the fall line now if you listen to it, it sounds like to fall. It is a bit like that, <laughs> <laughs> but that—that's just that—that's—that's that's, a lot of people would complain about that nowadays about it not being you know in in super high def sound and in you know and all the images being in 1080p. But it is what was available then, and it was the reason it's like that is because this game, in a lot of ways, was stretching
0: or pushing kind of boundaries and what was expected mm. from games. Even in the mid 90s, this game had a slightly nostalgic retro feel as we were coming to the end of the millennium, and I think that was deliberate. But now. Now it has a kind of double retro feel, if you see what I mean. So Mm. it's like a 90s game that was maybe set in the late 80s, uh, and it was you know or it was a cartoon that was a european cartoon that was made in the in the very early 90s or something like that is is h- how it feels to me anyway
1: it feels like it was written in the early 90s and set in the late 90s
0: yeah something like that yeah and the, the fact that he uses like he has to keep borrowing the workman's phone like one of you know some of the puzzles are mm. distracting a workman so that you can use his uh his field telephone as it were it's <laughs> like it's, it's yeah. ridiculous like you just wouldn't you just wouldn't write it nowadays and that's uh, you you know, it's so funny us, you know, in my day talking like this about about this video game, which uh, to some people would probably still, you know, people who are not cognizant of video games at all would look at Broken Sword now and think, oh, that's a really nice, you know, modern video game. But actually it's two decades old and it features scenarios which really like. Hark back far more, as we say, to things from uh, Indiana Jones, or you know, which is set obviously in uh, you know pre-war times and uh, or during the war, and um, yeah, stuff like that. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating in that respect. um,
3: There's something of. Uh, that though, uh, back to thinking about you know Charles Dickens is the reason we all think that we have loads of white Christmases when we really don't. Um, <laughs> that's right, yeah. And, and, and that's why yeah. the Harry Potter books always have snow at Christmas, despite the fact yeah. we just don't in Britain. Even if you are you know up in the north of Scotland, really. Um, but there's there's something of of that when we get to the age that a lot of people writing. Uh, books and films and 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 games like this are that we hark back to the sorts of problems we had when we were children which by definition not only by the time you get to an adult you have technological solutions for but the being of, of uh, just being an adult solves the problem you know there's something you know very um enid blighton about the problems that kids have and looking at it from an adult perspective being well obviously you can just solve this any way you like you then write back to your childhood you know you write back to a time where that was still a problem and that's exactly what they've done here even by the time the game was being made um this wouldn't be how the story would have played so yeah it does have almost a, a sort of half decade period feel but yeah it wants to still be seen as modern so but I think that's just the nature of writing a, a mystery, you know. I think the biggest concession to its age is the idea that a freelance journalist
1: could live in an apartment that big in Paris nowadays. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, that was a very 90s thing, you know, people with low-paid jobs living in uh, luxury apartments, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. apparently. Uh, yeah, let's talk about the, the lead characters. Carl already mentioned George, George Stobart. He's a law student. He's kind of a preppy guy. Um So, Carl, you were talking about, uh, you know, the fact that you felt like you were kind of, you know, acting with or as him in a lot of ways. And I think that's a it must be a tricky thing to to write a a protagonist, an avatar that people want to be. But certainly while George for me is, um, I don't know, he's not necessarily somebody that I immediately warmed to when I first Mm. played the game, but it didn't take long. And you realise he's, you know, even if even if he dresses a bit dorky or whatever, he's he's one of the good guys, and he's got this uh, this very nice um, sort of sing song voice played by Rolf Saxon, who uh, who is the American voice of the Teletubbies, not the Teletubbies themselves, but the narrator in the American Teletubbies. So if you uh, if you if you want to hear him doing his other job, Google US Teletubbies on YouTube. Google it on YouTube. I sound like an old man, you know what I mean? For me, he was just like blank slate enough that i didn't feel like his character was being pushed on me and he was likable enough that i didn't feel pushed away by him so um yeah i certainly uh i, I the fact that people are, i went on like a, a broken sword sort of fan site and even as recently as last year there's still people debating um you know how after five games how his relationship with nicole was coming on and all this sort of thing so people really took these characters to heart um Uh, Yeah. Do you think George is a successful Avatar protagonist? George is an interesting
2: point and click character in that to sell him, he doesn't actively use humour. You know, everybody loves Guybrush Threepwood. He's the sort of he's the clown. Everyone laughs at him and, and, you know, you you sort of laugh with him and whatnot. But then with George, he's this law student. He's... um, sort of a bit straight-laced in in, in his character and he's not outwardly funny and he looks a little bit awkward. And this is the time when protagonists, and I mean, I say at the time, it's still the case now that the majority of protagonists always look a little bit handsome, a little bit too strong, a little bit bigger built and stuff, and this actively avoids any of that, sticks to the kind of character he would be. I think he's meant to be a handsome guy, isn't he? I don't. To, I mean, I never found him appealing in his look. I never actually liked the look of George, and I couldn't stand his hair. And he always made me laugh that in Disney's Atlantis movie that was released in 2001, I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. I've but, seen
0: and uh, I know what the character looks like. Yeah, yeah. the yeah.
2: character that Michael J. Fox voices, the lead character, is basically a straight-up rip of George Stillby. You'd <laughs> yeah. swear it was the same guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really odd. Um, and to, to the point that I figured it had to be the same person. George won me over with the voice acting and the writing. Whilst I never found him appealing to begin with, it was so consistent throughout that I learned to adore him as the character to play within this game, and, and the way he would hold conversations and, and, and you know, do his actions, and, and obviously the little touches of the animations and whatnot sold him as a great protagonist. But from the visual side in terms of design, I didn't get on with him for the longest time, which 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 is weird because I did like the design of the characters that you interact with from the gendarme and, and the, the worker and, and Nicole, for example. But George always seemed like the odd one out, but his, the voice work I thought was fantastic for him.
1: The odd one out thing is the reason that I've always quite liked George, because again, to compare him, an easy comparison, even down to the impossible hair, is to compare him to, uh, to Guybrush Threepwood. But Guybrush, at the start of Monkey Island, had a like he was going out. To, he had a plan. He was doing something. George was just on holiday. And even if you kind of role play him to where he immediately tries to run away from the scene of the of the the explosion, mm-hmm. he gets he gets dragged into that story whether he likes it or not. Like at no point does he really have much of a choice in anything that he does and i kind of like the idea that like at, at any point you can look at him and just think you're in well over your head aren't you but he doesn't have any special abilities he can't jump really high he doesn't you know he can't fire lightning out of his hands he's just a, a guy who's been in a horrible situation and then gets dragged
0: into this story it's true. There is, I mean, there is a lot of cartoon logic in the game, in, in the way that things progress. But to be fair, he does, like, he does initially try to speak to the police and try to get the police to deal with it. So, because mm. normally with, with these sorts of things in, in fiction, there's this whole kind of, just go to the police, for God's sake, just go to the authorities. But he does actually do that. And uh, and it doesn't get him anywhere because they're corrupt and incompetent by equal measure. In the end, it's the worst thing he could have done. But um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
3: Well, my experience, obviously, my first experience with with, uh, these characters, and George specifically, voiceless, so uh, I can't speak to my first impressions of these characters were not tied to the to the voice actors. And I have to say, it's even more striking now than it was in 2009, but even even back then, uh, for both the characters, but George specifically, he's incredibly white. Like, yeah. Incredibly white. Oh, yeah. like, no, I don't mean like blank slate kind of white. I mean like, I'm really white, you know. I mean? But this guy I'm looking at thinking, you could be less cookie cutter. This is definitely the first time he's left the States. Yeah, it, it's just he's yeah. very wet behind the ears. He's only like 22 or something, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's point, supposed to be young, yeah. but he, he's he, he's it's, it feels like they're aiming for that every man and they just kind of missed and hit the, the no man. You absolutely get the sense that if this hadn't have happened to him, he would have graduated, met
1: a girl in like Jonesport, Ohio, or wherever <laughs> he's from, and then nothing else interesting would have happened to him for his entire life,
0: and then he would have died at 85 uh and and that would be it Charles Cecil said that he wanted to uh he wanted two protagonists so that they could exchange ideas which I think is a which works well um you know obviously as we've discussed they don't have google so they sit there at a desk and talk and occasionally phone people up and show each other clips from newspapers and and pictures of of uh, old things and manuscripts and stuff like that they made George American and Nico French to simply to appeal to the US and European markets um because obviously this was a game developed entirely and completely uh In England, I believe. So the casting of Nicole was actually first, and that's Hazel Ellaby, obviously not a French woman, as you can tell by the accent. And I don't think there's a single French person in the game, as you can tell by all the accents. Uh, We're coming on to that. Um, But yeah, that's uh, Nicole. And uh, if you watch EastEnders right now, like this week, uh, she's currently in EastEnders playing a character. I don't watch EastEnders, but she's playing a character called Diane Atmore, uh, and she's a recurring character now. So that's your that's your Nicole. Uh, And it was her suggestion that got Rolf Saxon cast as George because they didn't have a George at the time. Uh, And they both went to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London. So now, you know. Yeah, so I, I want to talk about the rest of the characters and, and cast because I think this is where the age of the game tells in some ways, and I think and I'm not I'm not being entirely negative about this uh, because as I say, having kind of watched this game through again and sort of almost treated it today like a kind of Sunday afternoon matinee, you know, I still found it uh, entertaining like a like a, a a sort of radio play or something, but you've got this quite deep and dark and intricate story but you've also got these very, very ripe and fruity caricatures of everybody. Now, I don't think the game is xenophobic because pretty much every, na- every nationality comes off badly. Um, <laughs> like the, the French are alcoholic incompetents, the Irish are alcoholic idiots, the English are stuck-up idiots, the Americans are just greedy, fat idiots. Um, but pretty much every non-playable character you meet is some sort of idiot. Now, some of them are likeable, some of them are less likeable. But the combination of the the script and uh, I absolutely want to stress that there are I thought there were some really, you know, witty, funny lines still in there. But there's also some quite there's some relatively lowbrow stuff and some fairly cheap innuendos and stuff like that dotted throughout. And then you've got this juxtaposition with this pretty at times bloody and dark Uh, Plot Mm. And occasionally the tone seems to flip from very adolescent to quite adult in terms of, you know, the things that they're referring to, whether it be sexual stuff or murder. But then it will be quite very, very simple stuff about, uh, you know, I don't know, goats. Um, (laughs) And it's kind of weird now. But the thing like I am bearing in mind that it's 20 years old and I'm trying to think, right, you know, what else was around at this time? I remember I got some flack from a couple of only a couple of people. I'm very lucky on the internet. I don't get too much flack for some reason. Mm-hmm. But a couple of people really took issue with the fact that I was highly critical of the voice acting in Shenmue. Because they said, well, Shenmue was like ahead of its time for voice acting. And I was like, but Broken Sword came out <laughs> like <laughs> three, four years before Shenmue. And again, I understand Shenmue was a localization but it was still dubbed into English, and here, yes, okay. So you've got some ripe, fruity approximations of regional accents from around the globe, but they are delivered with aplomb. They are delivered with, you know, it's a bit hammy and a bit stagey, but it's like a, it's like a, it's like a, ra- it's like a radio play, you know. It's quite charming, regardless, isn't it? I, like the- I, yeah, I think for the most part, it is. Yeah, I think on the whole, the voice
1: acting is kind of passable to good. Depen- mm-hmm. depending on which bit of the game you're in. Like Rosso, I think, is amazing. He's got that kind of quiet, kind of uh, simmering voice that, it's, you know, spoilers when it turns out he's the big bad in the end. Of course he is. He sounds yeah. it and he's got a big long coat on like obviously he is. Um but Moo Mu, Moo's really funny and his and his his delivery is is funny as well. Like like the the bit where he's trying to wake up um oh god what's the name of the victim of the bombing was it Plantard? Plantard. And he's trying to wake him up and uh I think he says sir will you please stop not breathing to him or something like that.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh and it it's it's I mean, you're 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 totally right. I mean, as I remember, the depiction of Ireland in the game is that it's basically a like some sort of medieval time warp. Um, <laughs>
0: yeah, but they do have electric glass washer. So
1: oh, they do have an electric glass washer, which you <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but yeah, apart from that, you're absolutely right. You, yeah, you smashed a bits with a Yeah, it was the Ireland bit which I kind of think stuck out to me at the time. But actually, going back to it. It, like I say, I think every, everyone in every nation is depicted as a bit of a stereotype and a bit of an idiot. It's not that I'm you know, taking sort of politically correct issue with the stereotyping of everyone in the game so much as it's the weird hodgepodge of tones which is something that video games yeah. for me still get wrong a lot uh, you know it's something we talk about but I think 20 years ago this this was just completely expected and it's not something that struck me at the time but it does now
3: to look at the kind of the other end of that you, you talked about uh, radio plays in terms of uh, the voice acting being mm. uh, a bit sort of overdone a bit caricatured and that kind of thing um, and I think that speaks back to the, the kind of stagecraft anim- uh, animation style that I was talking about it is there is something of the operatic about it Um, and I would never suggest that it tickles a lower low levels of let's well, take dark it setting did, ridiculous characters and ridiculous uh, accents but th- there's something of the again because of the, uh, the french
0: connection i suppose there's something of the inspector clouseau about the whole thing there's a cl- there's a definite clouseau but i think there is a point, there is a spot of officer crabtree as well i have to say uh, which is yeah, uh, which is uh, not a high but, but, but the
3: the thing about that those are different time different era those are obviously supposed to be ridiculous caricatures uh, whether that's acceptable or not is is completely different but I mean the the setting of some of these things. It's whether it's all oh, those uh, World War Two setting, um, or whether it's the murder setting of something like Inspector Clouseau, uh, or the crime setting. Um, there are tonal shifts there to be had. I think it it maybe it doesn't handle that as smoothly as some other uh, aspects. But like you say, there's plenty of animations that are quote unquote kids films that tackle dark stuff, and and side by side with potentially you know falling humor, fart jokes, that kind of thing, um, toilet humor, totally, yeah. and I, I think this does it well in that it handles it as a caper. It handles uh, it right in yeah. terms of that kind of Indiana Jones aspect. There, there is this is an escapade that is being gone on. These are two essentially kids, uh, although young adults, obviously, um, who are clearly in over their heads, clearly out of their depth uh undertaking an, an ancient treasure hunt basically it's supposed to evoke as as indiana jones does the serials of the 30s and the kind of um the ridiculous overblown nature of all of that um and even you know i mean the typical uh one of those to refer to would be something like Zorro. that character there mm. is a swashbuckling nature but there's also uh and, and that can have both humorous and and obviously uh serious sides to it so I don't think it it does that particularly badly. Whether or not it tips over into being offensive with uh, characterization. I, I think it. You're right, Leon. I think it dishes out equally. I don't think any of it's malicious. Um, I think That's it's supposed it. to be yeah. caricature. Yeah. Too obviously to each their own on whether or not that uh, that walks that line well or not. Yeah, totally.
0: And I think. Um I think one of the, the important parts is, as Carl said, there is, there is a charm to it because a lot of them, even a lot of them may be idiots, but they, they also come out with the odd, you know, humdinger of a line. And, Mm. uh, or they'll say something that actually gives away they're more intelligent than, than they're letting on. But I think perhaps the reason that virtually, because you know, this being a uh, a '90s point and click adventure game, virtually every character you meet has some bearing on your progress in the game because that's how they work. Um, it doesn't present you with a room of eight, you know, of eighty people, and you have to work out the ones that you you need to interact with. Um, that's partly technical and partly for gameplay reasons. I think yeah. mm-hmm. um, so. Every character is well drawn literally uh, and figuratively Um, and to be honest I think you kind of have to make them a bit obtuse and a bit stupid otherwise you've got no you know if you just turn up at a place and say can I go in that door and they say well no obviously you can't show me your ID and you can't trick them with some obviously fake ID or you can't um make them go around the corner to look at some random noise that you've triggered uh or whatever if if you can't do those things then you haven't you haven't got a game have you you haven't got a puzzly a fun yeah. romp of a puzzle mm-hmm. game anymore so um i think their their idiocy is kind of justified by the, the by the medium in this case maybe
2: yeah i mean for sure when when those kinds of games get a bit dry there's that element of is it fun or not? I mean, mm. I think back to things like *Mist*, for example, where right. at, at times there was because there was very little or no humour. It when you couldn't do stuff in a, in an amusing or fun or you know game way. After all, the, the reason we play games is to be entertained, and when there's little or no entertainment coming back at you, you do question why you're playing it or whether you want to continue. In terms and of frustration, yeah you know it's something that LucasArts were obviously very aware of because you know we had dear the Technical*, sam and max um obviously monkey island etc all of which were hilarious with with its humor um and obviously this being based more in the real world had to deliver that humor somehow the example i would give is Lobano andre Lobino. so
1: two things about him one yes he is very heavy-handed but oh you do hate him you do hate him <laughs> um because he's moving on moving in on your girl and you do mm-hmm. grow to dislike him but also he is a kind of horrible pretentious posh boy he's just not a nice person and he, he looks yeah. down on you and he's obviously from money and he doesn't understand why this 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 person is in his city nosing around at these things
0: Uh, Let's move on and talk about the actual mechanics. We mentioned gameplay there um, and I said earlier about the uh, sort of uh, perhaps some of the refinements that Revolution had already started to make and, and, you know, I think I don't know if they they were entirely responsible for the shift from um, kind of uh, words to icons, I think, because there were a lot of people making different uh, point and click adventures in the um, from the late 80s to the mid 90s. So I imagine that um, there were probably step changes along the way as put in by different developers. I don't have a chart in front of me, but certainly um, I when I, I remember playing Broken Sword and I guess it, it was my first point and click for a little while because as I'd been playing mainly on like the the 16-bit consoles uh, as the Amiga wound down, um, so I hadn't had a PC at this point. And this is we're pre we're even pre of Monkey Island here. We're pre the third Monkey Island game. Um, so I remember coming to this and and seeing the the you know the little cogs for for doing and the little. The little grabbing hand for grabbing and thinking, God, this, you know, and uh, and obviously, especially you have to remember, we were playing this game with a D-pad controller because this was pre-analog controllers on PS1. You could actually play this with a mouse as well, I believe. Um, There was a PlayStation mouse. I had a couple of those. Actually, possibly I did play this with a mouse. I can't remember when I got them. But anyway, um, for most people, they would have absolutely been playing this with a D-pad. So dragging a cursor around the screen in eight compass directions and, and clicking on things. And so... This interface, not only was it, uh, you know, designed to be really, really uh, swift and slick and uh, intuitive for the mouse, it translated uh, really nicely to controller. And as I say, I think we're still seeing the the benefits of this with like Telltale games now. This is effectively the same system that we're still using. Um, we haven't gone to Wiimotes. We haven't gone to Kinect. We're now just... Playing by moving cursors around the screen with it, with it albeit with analog instead of D pad. So, well done to them for that. And, and even just stuff like the layout of the screen. So, along the top, you've got items, and along the bottom, you've got conversation topics, and they're context sensitive. So, it doesn't leave stuff in there that isn't uh, that is unnecessary. I mean, there are the items always all show, and there are situations where I certainly remember trying. Every item with every character, and trying every item with every other item over and over again, and that was that was kind of part of the game back in those days. Uh, if yeah. you were stuck, but um, but overall, I think this was uh, this felt like a big intuitive step forward that kept the, the the game and the plot moving along at a pace.
1: The thing that it gets right is the fun part of a point and click game is working out the puzzle, working out what you need to do, working out the the where the cogs fit, if you know what I mean. Yeah. What's not fun is working out the, oh, no, you've not got it wrong. You you, you're, you you know that you need to open the door to make this happen, but you need to open the door, not push the door. You know what I mean? Like like eliminating that kind of verb grid just meant that you, you've got a button yeah. to do and a button to look. That's basically it. Um. The, the The thing that I think is a little bit rubbish sometimes is that mm-hmm. Sometimes, and I can't think of any examples, and maybe it's just in two. But I know there's examples somewhere in one and two where you have to look at an item in order to then do something else with it, and it's like a jar. It's something that you'd never think. Well, I will best examine that before I carry on because it's just it's just a jar or a box or you know something very simple. But that that's not necessarily a fault with the kind of the 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 UI. But I I love this this. The simplicity of it where as I say it's not about working out the correct verb to use on a thing it's more about working out the parts of the kind of mad Rube Goldberg machine that you've got to try and work out because that's basically what it is isn't it you build a, a kind of A funny machine out of words and actions and then it opens the door and you know opening the door might be moving into the sewers or you know whether it's a a literal or a kind of conversational door that's what you're doing is you're unlocking doors as you go on so taking out the kind of need to work out exactly the 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 word that the developers wanted you to use and more this idea that it's interact with this then this then this is so much more elegant than than having given you twelve words that you need to work out what's going on with. Um, actually, in terms of UI, what came first, this or Monkey
0: Island three? This was ninety six, and Monkey Island Curse was uh, ninety seven or ninety. Yeah, no, grim Fandango was ninety eight, so Curse was ninety seven. Yeah, ninety
1: seven, because yeah. that's that's not this simple, but it is more simplified, isn't it? Yeah. Like, have you got like have you got a wheel or something like that?
0: Uh, yeah, they did something along those lines. I mean, yeah, and obviously, you know, again, me being old me, I, I'm going back to, uh, you know, the, talking about the verbs and, you know, the grid of verbs being too much. Like, go, I go back mm. to the times when it was, uh, you know, you had a cursor on screen and you typed in you typed and... the words that you want and, and it was about working out which words the game literally understood. So, yeah, um, mm. yeah that was... that. So even the LucasArts way seemed like a massive... Uh, Uh, smoothing of that process so so this was yeah just another step in that direction and and I think but to be honest there was part of me and and I have had this cross my mind even when playing Telltale games is that is it actually taking a chunk of the game out of the you know the game being actually working out what to do and maybe back in the day working out the parser working out the interface was part of the game and and to be honest I don't think Broken Sword or The Walking Dead suffered from this simplification. But but I do remember having that thought process in my mind back in back in the day, thinking, well, actually, the one of the reasons that these adventures used to take us so long to complete was because we didn't know what to tell them <laughs> to do. So, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, it was a two-stage process. You had to work out yeah. the lexicon first and then work out which of the available
0: words your lexicon. Was actually the one that would would work for this particular scenario. And when it and and going back to text adventures, which of the available words was potentially any of the words in the English language? So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, the, 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 there's got to be an elegance to the streamlining of mechanics, and it, it's you know it's something we see even more of these days. Often to the point that I think some games get too much streamlined out of them, and they actually yeah. remove the content that I liked. But I mean, how many times yeah, that's on this what podcast I'm have to, we mentioned? Yeah. How many times on this podcast have we mentioned the um, waypoint in Bioshock?
0: Mm. Yes, the For example. golden triangle or arrow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And, and that benefited that game because the player no longer felt lost or isolated. And I mean, as someone who played a lot, and I'm talking an incredible number of point and click games um, leading up through my youth, um, I played some really tenuous ones that had some incredibly loose combinations of things to put. To create a third action, you were purely accomplished by trying everything, not because logic made sense. Um, and Broken Sword, for the most part, everything's logical. Removing for the the most two the, 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 the tiered uh, selection system does help, but there were puzzling moments. I mean, I distinctly remember, and you know, as we've already alluded to, this is pre Google, pre Yahoo, pre majority of people being on the internet and writing you know, game guides mm. um where we had to wait two months for a magazine in the hope that it may cover it mm-hmm. or phoning up helplines oh, for yeah. one pound fifty a minute. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember ringing up these phone lines on at least two occasions, with the parents' permission I may add. Um <laughs> for broken sword. Oh really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, as as just and that for me I don't hold that negatively against the game that's all part of that adventure through for me and and something that I actually enjoyed because I wasn't someone and still am not someone who caves in very easily i I have to be truly defeated um and uh, you know this is from a seven year old who would play point and click games and not fully understand everything that was going on, yeah, but I would just click away until I progressed and to not be able to do that in broken sword and have, have call a phone line, that meant that I was truly stuck, but for me, all part of the experience and and
0: something that I admire. Yeah. I I we should talk about the puzzle design. Um we'll come on to the GOAT. Uh but <laughs> apart from the GOAT, uh I'm gonna say that uh most of the puzzles in this game, as Carl says, are pretty logical, make make real world sense, whereas um, you know, sometimes in the LucasArts games, by design and other point-and-click adventures, sometimes by design they didn't make sense because they were meant to be bizarre. You know, there's things in like Zap McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders which are just absurd, like, I don't know, combined squirrel with goldfish bowl or something like that. It's just, you know, complete, you know, it's it's designed to be as as wacky as possible. But in this game, and I think this is part of the reason that I found the game so compelling, was that it felt like... Uh, the puzzles had a real world logic. So, for instance, the plaster of Paris filling in holes with plaster of Paris mm. and making an impression of something, making an impression of a key in soap and things like this. The, this not only was satisfying stuff to solve, but it also felt like stuff that you could really do in your spy fantasies, in, in your kind of your Indiana Jones moments or, or whatever. So so that was all good. But um, but yes, then there was, there was the goat as well. But generally, before we come on to that, is this one do you share this with me that one of the reasons that broken sword is perhaps a more fondly remembered um point and clicker is because the puzzles were eminently solvable yeah yeah, yeah. I, I would absolutely go for that yeah I, I not any argument I mean some of them are a
1: bit odd, like the cat in Syria oh yeah,
0: yeah, there are some moments yeah yeah like, like
1: it, I mean that that again you you can that's nice because that's like a multi stage thing that you you puzzle it out as you go. But it is awfully convenient that if you don't get it right by the end of, like, the cat dropping the ball and then this happening and then that happening, everything resets itself back to how it was initially. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, it needs to do that. Obviously, again, it would be rubbish if it didn't do that. But, yeah, on the whole, everything makes sense. There's very little in them that makes you think... Well, I, I never,
0: ever, ever would
1: have thought of that. Yeah,
0: the, the there are a few animation or timing-based ones, which is something we'd already seen. I'm thinking about sneaking into the kitchen in the first Monkey Island game was something that you had to do based on the animation that was happening on screen. So it's not all combine item with other item or use item on item. So there are there are points when you have to interact with the, the action, so to speak. But I know that the one that... Uh, that stumped a lot of people, famously so, uh, and we'll hear about it in our three-word reviews as well. Is the goat uh, now watching the playthrough today? Obviously, the guy is is just a playthrough with no commentary, and he does everything pretty much he or she I don't know does everything first time, um, and it's it's uh, it's it's fun to watch actually, and you can see that you can play through the game in under six hours, and in fact, uh, the person playing it doesn't save until four hours in, which was uh, around four hours, which is the first point that you can reach a fail state which they remove from the director's cut, which we'll talk about. Um, But yeah, the goat puzzle, seeing somebody just solve it straight away, you go, oh, well, obviously you move the, uh, you move the, the plow thing and the goat gets attached to the plow. But notoriously infamously, and this includes myself, uh, people got horribly stuck on this puzzle. And Charles Cecil has been quoted about it many times. He tells a story about how he got chatting to somebody about how he makes games in a cab in New York. And, Uh, They said, and they said, Oh, you know, what games do you make? And he said, Oh, you wouldn't have heard of it. I did a game called Broken Sword. And he said, Oh, so you're responsible for that? damn goat um <laughs> and he said before that uh, in an interview in edge that um he says that he regrets the goat puzzle not only because it follows him around you know years this i mean this interview was probably 10 years ago now but so already for 10 years he'd been saying you know this goat puzzle follows me around and, and he regretted it because it broke the rules of the other puzzles in the game in, cer- in certain ways and that it wasn't consistent and that's why people got stuck but the thing is, like now, and they, they, they changed it completely in the director's cut, so it's ridiculously easy to get past. But almost it, it's now one of those great gaming things, the goat puzzle in Broken Sword that, that people know about. So I'm kind of glad it's, it was there in the first place, even though, like, from a games design point of view, maybe it was uh, a mistake.
1: It's not so much that it breaks. Well, it, it does break some rules, but it's more, it's the fact that it's the first time it breaks the rules that, because basically what you need to be, you need to do something while George is mid animation. That's it, and yeah. It's yeah. the first time um, that the game asks you to do anything rel- kind of time reliant, really, I think. You mm. think?
3: The the other way um, in which, and, and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong because I've never actually played this puzzle, but the other way in which it breaks the rules is you have to repeat an action and get a different result. So you you do something once, that's right, and then yeah. you have to repeat the same action which um the game's taught you up to this point. If you try something, it doesn't work, try something else. Don't try the same thing again yeah. so yeah. um uh, uh, apology but I, I think it does in a couple of ways break the rules, but um i I've, I've never had to play the puzzle, so <laughs> I, I think you know, that's nine. it yeah basically james for your kind of for your benefit, what
1: happens is um you know um if you go over to the goat, it will knock you over. yeah yeah. as george is in the original as the george as george the george as george is getting up um it gives you control back very very briefly and it's a it's it's quite it is quite a small space of time and in that Mm. time you need to click on the plow so that he moves the plow over the lead which means the goat can't butt you next time then yeah yeah, because there's a couple of puzzles later on i mean there's a way in the bar i think it's when you go back to the bar in ireland um there's a way of setting the game up so that you can't advance I can't remember exactly how you do it, but you need to take a certain item before something else is out. Oh, no, that's right. Um, the guy in the bar who, um, spoilers, gets knocked over by the car, you can set him to run out of the bar without getting the uh, an item that he leaves. Oh. And by doing that, you make the game uncompletable. Ah. I guess they uh, removed
0: that from uh, the director's cut.
1: One would assume so. <laughs> um, but uh interesting as well, you were saying... Uh, on about it's interesting seeing you complete the game in less than six hours you can complete it in under two hours um right. oh, if you I,
0: don't listen to the, <laughs> yeah, to the dialogue yeah, I yeah think, sure.
1: I, I th- well I think the speedrun record is about one hour 45 okay something like yeah that. but yeah, yeah. yeah uh, the 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 goat puzzle is uh, like in broken sword five there's a couple of references to it um in that there are puzzles involving goats and mm-hmm. it, it's one of those things I think actually in the directors cut did they add a did they add a line of voice acting where Possibly, so where he says, "Oh, like, oh, that was easier than I thought it was going to be," or something like that. Yeah, yeah something was, like that, yeah. which is in keeping with because again, a lot of the humour in the game is kind of fourth wall breaking, nudge nudge, wink wink. Yeah. Um, th- th- things like, oh, I've pulled a a manhole key out of my out of my jacket, or mm. um, you know, when you when you try and give um anybody the 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 tissue with the clown makeup on it. And everybody's disgusted by the fact that you're yes. walking around with it in your pocket. Like, none of that. That's not, it's not zany, like gags. It's little
0: nudge, nudge, wink, wink. There's
1: a, there's a, a, there's somebody controlling this going on.
0: Yeah. And there's moments of like where the game or George pretty much says, Why the heck am I doing this ridiculous thing? You know, it's like, Why am I trying to give this person this or why am I combining this with this? That would be insane. Um, so, so it is, it is knowing in that, in that respect, which is in a way that, that games, can be. Uh, so, yeah, so the, the actual, the plot and the resolution, uh, we haven't got loads of time to talk about the story beats, of course, but um, I think it's important that we just say, you know, we said what the inspirations were and we said what it's about and we've talked about getting through the puzzles, but um, I'm interested just to hear from you to sort of say how you felt about the, you know, the, the point-to-point plot and how, how it drives you on and, um, and whether you feel it was uh, resolved in a, in a satisfying manner. Uh, watching the final Sequence again today, kind of made me realise how ridiculous that final sequence is. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's kind of re- it suddenly. I mean, I'm I'm so pleased there were no uh, back to puzzles for a second. There was a horrendous literal one pixel hunt in Beneath the Steel Sky, and uh, thankfully there was nothing like that in in Broken Sword. And obviously that was uh, that situation is ameliorated anyway by the 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 handy icon not being a single like a mouse cursor with with you know with a one point finder on it um but yeah the, the 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 end sequence with you know you have a guy you know you've got a ritual and and all that as you'd expect this kind of thing to end up but you got an old guy pointing a gun and then he manages to have the gun kicked out of his hand by by nicole by being an idiot and then a knife fl- flies through the air and gets somebody in the neck and then that person gets shot, and then you throw some C four onto <laughs> onto a pile <laughs> of old gunpowder, and it's all kind of a bit ludicrous. Like they 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 obviously felt like they had to have some sort of cinematic end. Um, they get completely blown up, but then they don't because they're behind a gravestone, and uh, it's all it's all very silly. But uh, but you, uh, I'd had so much fun by that point, you know, on both my playthroughs and even the watch through that uh, that I didn't really mind. But it was all kind of silly. But the, my point was that. To get to that point, I'd enjoyed every little, you know, every little nugget of intrigue and every getting every item and, and working out the the connections all the way through was even though you do some pretty mundane stuff along the way and some pretty silly stuff posing to be a doctor and, and various other things that you absolutely wouldn't get away with in real life. Um, although I say that there's always a new story that proves me wrong on that, but fun times, compelling story. And as Carl says, like I've not actually read The Da Vinci Code, but I've. I, I've seen passages of it, and I think overall, um, the writing in uh, Broken Sword is uh, is it's it's more more to be celebrated from my point of view, anyway.
1: Yeah, there's yeah when you're when you're nine years old and you've been brought up. On kind of detective stories and things like that, mm. there's everything you need. Like there's there's a man being shot on a train. There's yeah. a boat that you have to sneak onto. There's a clown with a bomb. There's kind of there's underground se- caverns. There's underground caverns and sewers and secret mysteries and rituals and rites and and uncovering things in tombs. What more can you ask for when you're nine, ten years old, or when you're twenty nine and still pretty
2: much not really moved on from that? <laughs> yeah, totally. The end. The ending. Uh, Just to get onto that, Mm. it it is somewhat ludicrous, Um, and given the pacing, as I said, it it felt progressive throughout, it does suddenly sort of ramp it up more than one notch towards the end and and go a little bit crazy, you know. Um, I I didn't so much mind Nicole kicking the gun out of his hand, but then it, it triggers a real series of events that just seem a little bit out there, but... Yeah, it's a bit comical. It Yet does bloody. almost start in the same way. <laughs> it, it starts yeah. in the same way, doesn't it? You know, with a with a clown blowing up the cafe and and. But yeah, I yeah. guess they needed that bombastic finish to this big story arc. I mean, ultimately they could have continued that one story arc across a, another game, but this was at a period of time. Particularly I would have hazarded that they weren't sure they would get a sequel. We were going into the 3D gaming, you know, Resident Evil and Tomb Raider with the science of the future and the way things were going. And and this was sort of well, I, not so much a throwback, um, only in terms of the genre that it was coming from, but in its style was was obviously very appealing. A four-year development cycle as well is gonna mean that it was kind of out of date by
1: the time it got there, and kind of they were probably taking yeah. a little bit of a risk pushing it out. So they probably assumed we might
2: break even on it, whatever we need to ship it now anyway. Mm. And and historically, Point and Clicks were sort of a one-and-done story. Even the likes of, you know, Monkey Island could continue mm. the tale into the second one with its characters, but they, it did wrap up a story regardless. And I guess this was just a way for them to finish it. Indiana Jones does a similar kind of thing mm. with big bombastic endings. Mm. Um, but yeah it It's a little negative in that it does take the easy way out i mean it's a horrible way to put it, but it's a way to put it at least um it does feel like it it cheapens it somewhat, but at the same time had I been writing it and I was capable of writing something like that, it's probably the yeah. avenue I would have taken it down as well.
1: It's probably the best of the endings of the broken sword games I mean oh, that's, right. okay. <laughs> quite, yeah. that's not yeah. saying an awful lot but um, three is particularly bad. I I stopped at
0: the second one, but yeah, sure. Uh, Three is
1: particularly bad, and five is just a bit
0: weird. Okay. James, so you came to this later in life and later in the world. So how did you feel about this story, and and it's denouement?
3: It's interesting Carl mentioned Indiana Jones, because that's exactly what I was going to mention, which is when I saw Kingdom of the Crystal Skull at the cinema, (laughs) Okay, the ending... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> the ending completely rubbed me the wrong way. I felt aggrieved uh, yeah. that they'd actually revealed the... Do I need to say spoiler? They'd, they'd revealed the the aliens to be to be real, essentially. And I yeah. felt aggrieved that they'd actually pulled the, the curtain back and shown you instead of allowing it to just be a question
0: of belief. Um, well, that was still more believable than the bit where they swung through the vines with the CGI monkey. <laughs>
3: that's certainly true. Um, but, but I, I then thought about it and I had little basis for that agreement versus the previous films, because the only difference was the nature of the fantastical was alien as opposed to supernatural uh, religion based. Um, But actually they have always gone uh, you know, they've always shown the supernatural to be real. They've always uh, yeah. pulled the curtain back and and, and had the kind of uh, the potential to, to leave the audience disbelieving. But for some reason, I bought into the first three films in a way that I wasn't able to in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. That's because uh, you believe in God, but not in aliens. <laughs> well Arguably exactly the opposite, which is even more ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. but, um, but so, so there's something about that where I'm willing to accept supernatural based on belief because I accept that other people have these beliefs and, and therefore we can allow our imaginations to run wild. But there was something about that uh, in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull that didn't feel okay with me. Uh, and in this, I accepted the ending as, as both... Thematically and mechanically, daft as it got when you got, uh, you know, uh, beyond the train sequence, it it kind of it it runs away with itself. But I, but I bought into that because the tone uh, had been shown to uh, be both serious and goofy uh, all the way through. And so I was, I was kind of happy to go with it. It didn't jar with me uh, in reading through a plot synopsis or just watching it the way you would probably think. Hang on, this is just it, it's gone a step too far. You know, jump the shark or whatever the, yeah. the turn of phrase. Uh, but I, no, I was, I was fine with it. And maybe that's just it's a video game. I'm, I'm happy with just about anything. But, uh, but no, <laughs> it was fine with me. I, I was uh, perfectly happy with it. Yeah.
0: That would make these podcasts a lot shorter if we just said that. It's
3: a
2: video game, it's fine.
0: It's a video game. It's fine. It's a video game, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so the director's cut uh, came out 2009 and beyond. Um, So it features uh, the ability well the well it's not even it's not an option uh, You, if you're playing the director's cut you are playing as Nicole in a new opening section yeah. uh, and a few other there are a few other new sections um, and yeah for me this really um, although there's some perfectly decent puzzles in these bits and they're, they're sort of um, although you know it's on PC as well but there was uh, this was kind of marketed mainly around the Wii version and there's also a DS version so the, the the Wiimote and stylus sort of interface sort of seemed logical for some of these new puzzles Um Obviously, mouse works fine too. Uh, but the opening—the fact that the opening is now a kind of precursor with Nicole—you know—in uh, as a if you're a fan of the game and the characters, then fine, it's interesting. You get to see a bit of you know what her what else was she was up to. But it completely destroys that amazing opening to the game because yes. it's no longer the opening to the game. The art is uh, obviously up resed to a point, but I don't—I'm not necessarily entirely com- confident. Uh, or you know it's a subjective thing but i don't think that they quite updated it in the way that i wanted them to no. so it on looks- the p
3: on the pc version yeah. y- you you don't select resolution you just select window size it's either uh, original yeah. uh like okay. augmented or or full screen if it's full screen it's pixelated it, they just literally just blow up the art to yeah right. to the screen size there's no uh extra hd there i i mm. don't know about on the mobile versions the ios version when it came to iPads, they did an hd version they may have tried to upgrade textures on that but i was surprised yeah. on the pc i wasn't able to play it slightly more uh hd uh, mm. being as a remaster as it was but um but on the ds obviously it's low res screen anyway so uh, yeah. it worked perfectly well on that i don't know if that it, they targeted it for that and then mm. did the best they could with everything else or whatever
0: There's some slight alterations to style and, you know, things have been cleaned up a bit, but not necessarily, as I say, in in the way that I I wanted them to look. Like when I was watching this playthrough of the original PC version, I was thinking, yeah, that still looks nice. But imagine if it was just literally that art, but just, you know, like redrawn at a much higher resolution. It would look lovely. But
2: let's just say as it is, Leon, it was redone in a completely unappealing fashion in that it wasn't stuck to the traditional methods that it went to. And you mentioned earlier that Monkey Island 2 did the uh, almost scanning of textures behind the drawings, mm-hmm. so you had that sort of photo style. Mm-hmm. There are elements where at the very start of the game when you're in the, in the building, there's a painting on the wall that is very much that's the case. It's sort of a, a scanned-in picture. It's no longer hand-drawn and painted, as they were in the original version. Um, and I mentioned that as, as the Broken Sword series progressed, I found it visually less and less appealing mm-hmm. to me. From, from the traditional values of the first. Mm-hmm. Um, and it becomes a bit of an amalgamation between what I loved about the first one and the little tweaks that they made for the second one that I didn't really enjoy that much. Right. I mean, I'm not saying that it wasn't a great game, but in terms of its art style. Um, and straight away, aside from the fact that the amazing startup from the original game was no longer in the Director's Cup because it puts this a uh, new location in uh, immediately put me on the wrong foot. But when I saw the art, I saw the art style and uh, you get those, um, Cameo the, of pictures. Rea- the reaction shots yeah. as well, don't you? When the characters- And that's, that's not how the first game looks like that. Mm. That's weird. And I, these little things were like little things that would niggle at me. Like, I don't like that. I don't like that. And once you see enough of them, uh, this, it was started to harm my thoughts and feelings of how Broken Sword Shadow of the Templars was. Yeah. And I didn't didn't like it. It was like it's like when you get a product and you bring an entirely new artist on board and he wants to implement his style and the studio has to go with it because he can't accurately recreate the original artist's style. And then you're left with that thing where some people like one artist and some people like the other. I really didn't like the way that it went with the director's cut.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, we have to take, you know, I'd have to take its title at at its word, the director's cut, but I, I do wonder, you know, it's not necessarily what I would have marketed it as because it's obviously, it's a version of Broken Sword that you can play on what were contemporary machines back in 2009 2010 and I'm so I'm glad that it exists in that respect and I played it through on the DS and and it brought back a lot of memories and I had a nice time playing it through again um some of the changes I didn't even notice because it had been already been you know a long time since I'd played the original but I was aware of these of these changes that I didn't like I was you know I was happy enough with the change to the goat puzzle mm. but uh but I you know things that I didn't realize obviously in the original game because it was released in the mid 90s you could save uh, Manually, whenever you wanted, uh, and that's fine. But you could also not save, as I mentioned, with that playthrough. The, the person who's playing it doesn't save for four hours. But there are fail states, there were multiple fail states, all with you know, different animations. George could get shot, he can get buried, he can get drowned, he can, you know, all these things can happen to him. And this was already again some years after LucasArts had, had taken this philosophy out of point and click games. But this game was meant to have. Uh, danger in it. It was meant to have peril, and so you could die. But you can't die in the director's cut. All the fail states have been removed. Um, so they, they, you know, they could have at least replaced, you know, the, the manual save with some checkpointing or something like that. But no, yeah. they just took all the fail states out. Um, yeah, and there's 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 a bit of censorship for blood as well and stuff like that. So the only sort of thing I appreciated really was another thing to make the game easier which was the hint system um, which effectively solves the puzzle for you if you ask it enough times Uh, and that was because I played through it before but if I hadn't played through it before that would have kind of potentially ruin the game as well hmm. so yeah I, i'm it's kind of a, a shame i would love to see another remaster of bro- the original broken sword i think director's cut is a poor name for it i i think some something like production cut would have been a better
2: see, I, I think it's the perfect uh, a better, a better name better for title. it. I, I completely disagree i'm afraid uh director's
3: cut of uh, the, the the key one to go back to and it fits because the, the Ken rinse on alien isolation just came out Director's mm. Cut doesn't mean ultimate edition. It doesn't mean um definitive edition. It just no, means sure. an alternate take. Now they've put Director's Cut on here. That's up to Charles Cecil whether or not well, he absolutely. agrees that this is the Director's Cut. Um, it just means an alternate version. Uh, so actually I, I think it's fitting that it's not an HD remaster. It's not an ultimate edition, a definitive mm-hmm. edition. It's not even an anniversary edition. It doesn't no. claim to collect what the game was and present it either as it was or in a, a modernised version. It's a different version of the game.
2: And so I, I think Directors' Cut's the perfect name for it. At times there are HD remasterings of it. So it, it's like if you took the original Alien mm-hmm. and then did a director's cut, but decided to add additional content and make it all 4K and just insert it in, then that's not a director's cut, that becomes a production cut. Well, but that's what they did. They they did add they did add an extra
3: uh, cut material, and they did put in alternate stuff, and they did brush up and and put it onto Blu-ray. So therefore, by definition, uh, you know upgraded it visually.
0: And famously, the Alien director's cut is actually slightly shorter than the, uh, than the original. Yeah, it doesn't
3: always mean yeah extra. It sometimes means, yeah.
0: But yeah, regardless of nomenclature and uh, semantics, it's the, p- the point we're making is it's not the same game as the original and it's had some quite fundamental tweaks to the way it plays. Part You know, partly, they're obviously, um, this phrase that I know is, a, is another one uh, that some people look out for on Kane and Rince, which is uh, concessions to the modern gamer.
2: <laughs> but also, yeah.
0: Um, yeah, just changes that maybe Charles Cecil and Revolution wanted to make, maybe Ubisoft as the publisher wanted them to make, we don't know, but it exists. It's out there, it's easy to buy, it's cheap, um, but I would still recommend, if you can, seeking out the original, but just remember to save. You can do that, can't you? The problem the problem with the Director's Cut, though, mm. is that it
1: doesn't... Uh, so if you think about what gets added, um, Nico going to meet Karshan, Kind of, if that happened, her arrival at um, the explosion at the cafe and her not really knowing what's going on doesn't make an awful lot of sense. There is that as well, yes, well remembered, yeah. Also, um, and and this this not so much, but I really can't imagine the the revolution have gone, brilliant we've got a chance to re-release it we can go back we can we can get the game in tip top shape as it as you know 15 years 15 years on we can make it look as we want and and guys we can put the block sliding puzzle back in yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um like can you god can you imagine that on a ps1 controller yeah um like the, the that's that that, that it, it feels like the we need to add some stuff to the ds version probably and that's and that's kind of what gets it like it doesn't feel like finally they've been able to add you know what, what bits that were cut or kind of because again if it was kind of all in the original style and it was literally cut out for space reasons or like at, at 15 years in I'd have taken we cut these bits out because the game you know sagged a bit in the middle because of them or whatever i'd i'd quite happily play that at this point as a kind of Uh, again, you know, as as somebody who wants to know everything about it, and I'd take it almost as a a kind of making-of and look at those bits and go, yeah, okay, I can understand why these bits were taken out now. Um, But this stuff was added, it's added right at the start of the game. Well, you know, the the, the bulk of the new material is is added right at the start of the game, so it doesn't affect the main story too much. It's completely different in terms of, um, well, everything about it is very different, and I say it kind of means that the start of the actual game doesn't
0: make tons of sense. Right. Cracking on, um, we've already mentioned it a bit, Influence and Legacy, but uh, yes, uh, The Da Vinci Code, the way that uh, I've, I've read it put is that uh, Charles Cecil has said that the game's fan base believes Dan Brown to have been influenced by Broken Sword when writing his novel <laughs> The Da Vinci Code because of the parallels between the two works. Cecil stated that he is flattered by this sentiment but that he would never claim so himself due to the threat of Brown's very serious lawyers. Um, <laughs> Gio, Gio Denis Sanchez, formerly of Edge <laughs> and of Pocket Gamer, said uh, Broken, Sword, is, Broken Sword's story is a tale some would argue that effortlessly outclasses Dan Brown's similarly themed and tricksy novel.
2: Is, is games fan base... The game is equivalent of
0: football's Sources Close To. It could be, yeah. Sky (laughs) sky Sources say, yeah, yeah, definitely. Three games uh, specifically, and I'm sure they're not the only ones, but three games actually specifically have credited Broken Sword as being an inspiration. They are Toonstruck, which was nearer the time, uh, but more recently, both Richard and Alice and Deponia. uh, And talk of a movie started uh, around 2007, so nearly 10 years ago now, Supposedly encouraged by the success of uh, *Broken Sword: The Angel of Death*, um, I can't remember what year the first uh, *Da Vinci Code* movie was. It was probably around that time as well. Um, and although it wasn't well reviewed, um, even though by directed by Ron Howard, who you know made some good stuff, it made buckets. It, it made 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 buckets of cash. Yeah. yeah. And there were still talks of the movie, Broken Sword movie, being in the works as of 2012. But I don't think anything much has been heard since then. No idea whether it would be live action or animation or CG or what. But, um, yeah, that's, we're, we're still hoping for the faithful adaptation of the first game that looks like the first game. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's basically the first game without the interaction. I'd characters. love to see how they market that. Yeah, totally. We were before Da Vinci Code Honest. Yeah. Just yeah. why? Well, I, I don't know why that works, to be honest. Uh, so surprisingly, I, I felt uh, we've, we only had a couple of um, forum posts about Broken Sword. I felt that it had been a more uh, widely played and fondly remembered game. Um, but yeah, we've got a couple of posts and that's all that matters. From uh, First from Sean S. Thomas, who posted at com slash forum. You can also email us, don't forget, podcast at canarince.com Uh, So, yes, Sean S. Thomas says point and click adventures were my favorite types of game when I was growing up, but the genre hadn't fared well post Amiga. After several failed attempts to make this ilk of game work in 3D, I recall seeing Broken Sword in official PlayStation magazine and knowing there and then I needed it. I recall it being a delightful game, though I haven't replayed it in a decade or so to know if that holds true. But it looks magical even now, its art style rendering it timeless a la Wind Waker. The scenes had a palpable atmosphere, the characters felt well written, the sparse music was eerie, the voice acting broadly great, the plot riveting and the puzzles intelligent. I loved the interplay between the two leads and that twist at the end was chilling. I remember how much the intro sequence shocked me too. Bomb blasts were common at the time and to see one open a video game felt like a massive statement of intent that this was a title for grown-ups. On that point, it also shares that rarest of traits for video games in that it seemed educational. Few games have managed it. Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego, 80 Days and The Last Express being a handful that I can recall? All of those experiences left me with some residual knowledge of a country, historical period or person. I felt Broken Sword did this too. I became interested in the Templars and when uh, when I went to France years later, it felt more like the scenes in this game than in any film I'd seen set in Paris. Overall, Broken Sword is one of the genre's greatest moments and looks like a real labour of love even now. Oh, and yes, I got stuck on that goat puzzle for hours too. Thanks, Sean. And uh, a love letter here from (coughs) regular correspondent Alex Dola, Alex79UK. There was a time in my life when I could honestly say that point-and-click adventures were my favourite types of games. A few years previously, I'd gone through all the LucasArts classics, Sierra Quest series, even the Gabriel Knight games. I remember so clearly the day my mate came round one day after college and said, here, you like Monkey Island, don't you? Try this and thrust into my hands a copy of Broken Sword on the PlayStation. It didn't look particularly interesting, a little straight-laced really, after the -the off-the-wall craziness of Sam and Max, Day of the Tentacle, and the ongoing adventures of everyone's favourite pirate, Guybrush Threepwood. Still, he sat next to me as I played the first hour or so, and from the moment the camera panned across that Paris skyline, coming down to rest on the little cafe where we are introduced to our hero, before the sense of lazy relaxation was brought to an explosive end by an accordion-playing clown, I was hooked. Broken Sword sees you trotting the globe as the not entirely likeable at first George Stobart as he attempts to uncover uncover the truth about the murder and becoming embroiled in a grand historical conspiracy going all the way back to the Knights Templar. He doesn't work alone, of course. He teams up with the delightfully voiced Nicole Collard, a local journalist who is both stunning and sarcastic in equal measure. I love the story. It reminds me of old Indiana Jones tales and the locations you visit in the game are all so beautifully realised. You can't help but soak up the atmosphere oozing out of the screen. The graphics are so nice indeed that I remember playing the game on one occasion where after half an hour or so, someone else in the room commented that they'd only just realised I was actually playing a game and not watching an animated movie. A couple of my favourite places to visit were the Syrian marketplace and the Irish pub, both overladen with stereotypes, but so enjoyable just to walk around and interact with. I really enjoyed the interaction between George and Nicole watching their relationship grow as the story unfolds, completely playing on the will-they-won't-they aspect of their friendship before climaxing with a satisfying and story-ending kiss during the game's finale. The characters range from the pure comical with Inspector Mu and the psychic Chief Rosso to the cold, steely stare of Khan as you gaze down the barrel of his gun before making a cliffside leap of faith to safety. This is an adventure game, so you can't talk about Broken Sword without discussing the puzzles. There are only two I want to mention here, both in Ireland. First of all, the goat puzzle. I really don't know what all the fuss is about. Anytime anyone ever talks about Broken Sword, they'll bring up how annoying the goat puzzle was. I promise this is true, but I did it first time without any trouble at all. Note the puzzle that really irritated me was the one where you first had to wet the Bart out and get it back up the hill in time before it dried up. That must have taken me about 10 attempts before managing to do it with success. I played this whole game with my aforementioned friend. We sat side by side and went through the entire thing. Well, not the entire thing. About 10 minutes before the very end of the game, I had some food cooking in the oven. I went down to get it out and serve it up. And when I got back to my room, I couldn't believe what had happened. He'd finished it. Hours and hours we'd sat and worked out the puzzles together. And he didn't wait 10 minutes for me to get back and see the ending with him. I've never quite forgiven him for that. Fortunately, we'd saved not long before the end. And I did it myself later that night. But still, what a git. OK, last bit. I promise now I've played this game through many times on PS1 PC using ScumVM. I've played it on my PSP and I've played the GBA version, which was pretty good. And I've played the more recent director's cut through twice. I love this game. I thought the director's cut was a really nice update. The new puzzles were good. Playing as Nicole was a new interesting aspect of the game. And I really feel like it offered enough for anyone familiar with the game to give it another go. Thanks, George. Thanks, Nicole. I'm sure it won't be too long until I see you both again. What a nice thing. He even likes the director's cut, which we were less keen on, but uh, great stuff. Wow. What a git indeed, though. You can't do that. Right. Three word reviews from Twitter. Follow us at Cane and Let's kick off with Chris. Number one from Door Iron: Stupid goat puzzle. The Sonic Mall says
1: that infernal goat. Glen Watts. Damn you, goat. <laughs> John Lloyd
3: says weird kissy. Christopher Cheung says, Clowns are scary. Morbid Beards says, Stobart's hair game. Genuine brag.
0: Shake my hand. And finally, Count Stex, point click perfection. Thank you, one and all. So let us conclude, wrap up, sum up. Uh, Broken Sword, the Shadow of the Templar's feelings, starting with James. It's obviously
3: a, uh, a bit rich of me to disagree with, with Carl's take on the Directors' Cup because it's the only one I've played, so I'm not going to necessarily feel defensive over it, but it's the only perspective I have. Um,
0: naturally the da
3: vinci code kind of stuck out obviously as i was playing through the game because i'd I'd read the book i'd seen the film it was in in my mind and it it had been very popular and it definitely has aspects of kind of composite mythology and conspiracy theories and uh, ancient treasure hunt as i mentioned before but uh, something else also stuck out which is um, in tone and with the train sequence at the end, uh, this game has uh, a Hitchcockian vibe to it as well, I think, uh, specifically thinking of films like 39 Steps and Lady Vanishes, which also have that kind of not slapstick, but there's, there's humour in there in, in terms of it uh, being an escapade. But there's also a serious tone to what's happening and what's going on. Uh, and there's still uh, mysteries and, and drama films. And the uh, the other comparison I wanted to, to make, because uh, the re-release of Secret of Monkey Island came out the same year as the director's cut did, so I played them very close together. Oh, yeah. And the director's cut starts off with a mime instead of a clown. And I think that oh, yeah. there's an apt comparison there, because <laughs> the mime and the clown are both physical comedians, they're both pratfalling and slapstick, um, but... So in a way, they're cut from the same cloth, but the clown's bright and vibrant and very loud, whereas the mime is obviously monochrome and by type is is silent. And there's something to that, I think, in terms of the way that Secret of Monkey Island and Broken Sword handle humour in a way that, to me, I was always destined to prefer Broken Sword in that it's a bit more understated. and And what it does is, the humor not being the front and center means that whereas in secret of monkey island i felt like each scenario was set up to be funny rather than to tell the story whereas in broken sword the story was always front and center the humor was there there was the kind of weird tonal uh kind of juxtaposition and stuff like that that we've mentioned but the story was there and that was the important thing in the point and click adventure that's that's what I really wanted from it, and it's weird because I don't have a long history like you guys with this game, this series, or or point and click adventure games, really. But I I love the fact that this was a pulp novel, a, a serial TV show, or a, a sort of a, a ripping uh, chase film told in in game form with all of the the wonders of the visuals and and the the way that the game fits together. Um, that that brings as well and i i really loved it it's it's actually surprised to me saying this now that i haven't already gone and played the rest of the games mm. because they're in my steam library i just haven't got around to them um and it's lovely to be able to sit here and kind of reminisce about the, the stuff it does well and the stuff it doesn't and have the prospect of of going and having you know four more games to play so i i can only say if if what we've talked about uh hasn't has inspired you in any way and you haven't played these games. Um, yeah. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Lovely.
2: No, oh, Carl. Cool. Yeah. I mean, B- broken swords one that I've been waiting to talk about for a long time on this podcast. Now uh, a, a huge fan of that genre. And I think broken sword became the point where you saw the evolution of that genre up until this point, you know, we'd, we'd gone through uh, text adventures, high fantasy, uh, slapstick comedy, and then to Broken Sword, where we had actual characters that weren't just there for comedy purposes that you could actually grow and evolve with and actually mm-hmm. learn their stories. And I think that that was a really interesting place for point and clicks to go. And unfortunately for that genre, I also don't think there was much room for it to grow beyond what Broken Sword had already accomplished. And it's not that the game's perfect. It's not. It has yeah a, f- a few missteps and and a couple of things that it could do better. But after 20 years... you're still looking at broken sword and saying that that is perhaps the pinnacle of point and click gaming and i think that that is a pretty incredible thing and you know it's maybe a a misconception that that it's a genre that's dead it's not it's perhaps a genre that doesn't get the media presence that it once used to you know you only have to venture onto a website like good old games to see that point and clicks are still coming thick and fast but with Broken Sword being available for often less than £2, I've seen it for. um, That's an incredible bargain for a a story that still plays and develops in an interesting manner. Um, Characters that that grow and develop as you play and become incredibly likeable, that you enjoy playing with, which is probably most important for a point-and-click game. And that is... I'm very hard to label criticism. I, I, the only thing that I would say is really look for the original version rather than the director's cut. I do feel like the original version was a better, more consistent product. I don't think that the additions that were made to the director's cut added anything. In fact, I've found many of them detrimental to my experience going through, whether it's your first experience as it is with James and, and, and you would even notice that or maybe you would appreciate it more. That is possibly the case. Um, But for a few quid, you really can't quibble because you're going to get one of the finest examples in that genre. And 20 years later, that still stands
0: true. Yes, indeed. Uh, Yeah, I think my copy on good old games was free. In fact, they were giving it away for a period. I don't know when that was, but um, so some of you may have picked that up whenever that was uh, whenever that was the case. So you might even already have it in your library. Uh, Yeah, so I have a huge amount of affection for the original Broken Sword, um, which was not sustained throughout the series. Um, if we uh, if we do continue covering them on Kane and Rince, it'll be interesting to play them uh, sort of contemporarily. Uh, but yes, and that and that is partly it is partly nostalgia. There's there's no denying it. Uh, having said that, when I played back through it in director's cut form on the DS, so cut down and director's cut, which I agree is not the uh, the prime way to to experience this game. Um, I still enjoyed it a lot and it and it brought back a lot of the happy memories um there's definitely a huge chunk of my affection for it is tied in with the presentation um the the atmosphere the the evocative nature of the art and that amazing swirling score from barrington Falun. but also it yeah it's just still i think it 's still just a cracking pot boiler of a story I think things that perhaps show up today as you know things that people might perceive as flaws if they come to it now is the the tone bouncing all over the place the the fact that it doesn 't seem to know sometimes whether it wants to be a a, a broad comedy or a serious clandestine uh, mystery um, and it and it kind of bounces around every every which way in that regard um, but ultimately, I still find it really really um enchanting and I shouldn't, you know, this is, this is disgraceful really, but it was a combination of, uh, the Ireland scene in this, uh, as, as reductive as it is in some ways. And Father Ted both being on in the mid nineties that made me desperate to go to Ireland. And I finally, I finally went to Ireland last year and it was indeed a magical place and I uh, hope to go back soon. But, uh, yeah. So that, that travelogue aspect, this, this game still does, I think a really, uh, I don't, I don't know what, what magic it is, but, um, yeah, there's something about it. They really captured those places that, that they were trying to capture, even in this slightly heightened and cartoony world. As, as we said, it it's a game that, if anything, feels as much like a, like a European cartoon of, of the late 80s, early 90s, as it does a 90s point and click adventure game. But yeah, anyone who think, thinks they would enjoy a game that was based around the sort of mysteries of the Knights Templar and uh, enjoys a good old fashioned romp, um, that doesn't require Twitch arcade type skills. I think this is still well worth playing in in whatever form you can find it. But I would still yeah, err on the side of the the non director's cut if you can if you can find it. But otherwise, play the director's cut anyway.
3: Is is it worth uh, very quickly saying that uh, the Steam version is the director's cut, as is the mobile version, as is the Wii and um, DS version. But GOG. dot com, if you buy the director's cut, you get the original as well. I think I've.
0: Seen I read that somewhere, that, yeah. but I've got the director's cut in my library, although that, you know, it was the one that was given away free, hmm. and I didn't see anything to say that it it also had the original in there. Um, yeah, I would right. have to okay. do a bit more investigation in that, but yeah. um, it's something, yeah, listen to there's, there, there's certainly someone
3: saying on GOG.com that you should yeah. get the original as well. Okay. maybe what, Whether just missed it, it'll action. work, et cetera. usually they do on GOG. but
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it'll be optimised and whatever. Cool. All right, let's conclude with our guest, Chris. So
1: there are two things that I do once a year. I watch Transformers I watch, the movie. Oh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I watch Transformers the movie and I play of a broken sword do. game. It's stuck with me for an extremely long time and I don't think I'll ever be in a, I, I, don't, I don't think that I'll ever change and I think I'll always do it 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 was the game that demonstrated to me that not everything was Super Mario or loaded um do you remember loaded on the playstation
0: the, oh I thought you meant the the magazine from the 90s. No, no, uh, no, no. but yes i do I do also remember the game yeah with its Pop will eat itself soundtrack mm. yeah, oh god
1: yeah yeah mm-hmm. um it yeah but it reminded me that not everything was that like games yeah. could could be could tell sound of i mean calling the story complex is probably. Given it a little bit more uh, praise than it deserves, but you know the story story could be an, an an adult story and actually be have intrigue and mystery in it rather than just being go and go and rescue the princess. And for that, it's a game that will probably stick with me forever. Say so it's it's one of my kind of all time top top ten, if not top five,
0: uh, and I can't see it ever moving from there. Beautifully put. So it just remains for me, Leon, to thank James Carl. And Chris, is there anything that you would like to point our listenership towards you?
1: Midnight Resistance. MidnightResistance.co.uk is now where I am. I am a poor replacement for Andy Hamilton because he is too busy. So uh, instead, I'm now on there. Uh, other than that, that's probably about the main thing. Um, uh, the, other, the only other thing is a very occasional uh, podcast I do called Being Very Sad, which is dot averysad.website. Uh, do not that with to... Andy Hamilton? Uh, amongst other people, yeah And um, Andy's <laughs> um, basically, yeah uh, Andy and I did it a couple of times when we didn't have anything else, we couldn't podcast about anything else for one reason it was while well Midnight Resistance was doing their site redesign but it's not specifically with Andy it's kind of with anyone who talked to me about stuff that isn't <laughs> games really um, Okay, and that's about it, really at right. CS87 on Twitter yes. if Good you stuff. want more of this for some reason
0: <laughs> he uh, has to do himself down uh, <laughs> Keep working on that self-esteem Chris And uh, thanks for joining us and, uh, and kicking our asses into doing uh, Broken Sword Shadow The Templars maybe, maybe we'll do Smoking Mirror at some point in the future We'll see Anyway, tell you listeners That next time in issue 243 We'll be continuing our Hylian Odyssey With the Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess Until then